0: My name is Jared Manning. I have the privilege of serving as one of the elders here, and am on staff. Um, I get to work with our our worship team and preach periodically, and um, do a few other things as well. Um, when I first came on staff, uh, I was called the associate pastor of everything, and uh, and so that. Uh, Still rings true, if not more so, now that we're in the search for a new teaching pastor. And um, so, I I'm honored and privileged to be a part of this body and love working with you uh, in partnership in the gospel. Um, Revelation is is kind of a. Um, A disturbing book in many ways. People read it and they don't know really what to think about Revelation. As you heard there, um, we do not serve a God who is like some Santa Claus in the sky. Who's looking down to see who's good and who's bad and who he can give good things to. And who he needs to punish or um, anything like that. We serve a warrior king who will bring justice to the earth. And uh, we are glad that we do not serve some squishy God in the sky that begs us to accept him or plead with us, but that he um, is sovereign over all. His will will be accomplished. It will not be thwarted. And so we come with that mindset to the book of Acts once again as we see God working In time, in space, for his glory, for the building of his church. Um, And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. His church will be built. And so we can have courage as we go into this world with the gospel. When we look back at the book of Acts, we see that nothing can stop the spread of the gospel. The early Christians were beaten, imprisoned, killed. But the church of Jesus Christ is only built on the blood of martyrs. It continues to march forward. A month or so ago, I was together for the gospel um, in Louisville, Kentucky, a large conference there. Um, Matt Chandler was speaking, and he said a week before that, he had been in Rome... And in the shadow of the Colosseum was teaching church planting pastors there in Rome that were going out from Acts 29 network and, um, and going to plant churches in all areas of Rome. And he said, as I stood there, I was reminded of this great empire that once ruled the earth, that tried to squash Christianity and he said, now I stand as a pastor, as a teacher of the word of God in the ruins of their Colosseum. The church still marches on and Rome is no more. That's the God we serve. Empires fall, but the church will not be crushed. We will carry on and the gospel will go forth and God will be praised and he will receive all the glory that he is due. We should take heart in that this morning. So I want to begin this morning by asking you a question. What comes to your mind when you hear gospel? What comes to your mind? I want you to think just for a moment. When you hear the word gospel, what's, what's the first thing that pops into your head? We use that word a lot. We talk about the gospel of Jesus. We talk about being gospel-centered. We want to be a gospel people. That word is used in a lot of different ways. For some, you might think of evangelism. For a lot, that, that's the first thing that comes to your mind is evangelism. I share the gospel with friends, with neighbors, with coworkers. I give them the gospel. So some people might think of a style of music. They enjoy gospel music. Some, it may be the whole message of the Bible. You may see this and say, this is the gospel. It contains the gospel. And others may not even know what to think when they hear the word gospel. They hear Christians use that word a lot, and they're like, I I don't really know what that means. In recent times, it's been a buzzword for churches. We are a gospel-centered church. We have a gospel-centered ministry. The gospel, in the simplest terms, is good news. That's, that's what it means. It is good news. But the gospel message, it, it's a message that comes with implications for all of life. And it has impact on every area of our lives, including the lens through which we see all of the people around us. And as we look at Acts 22 this morning... I want us to think about it in these terms. That the gospel has implications for all of life, including the lens through which we see everyone around us. So we're going to pick up at the end of Acts 21. David preached through Acts 21 over the last two weeks. And just for some context, I want to start there um, so that we understand what Paul, what he's in the midst of as he speaks. So let's begin um, in verse 27 of Acts 21. Acts 21, verse 27. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place, being the temple in Jerusalem. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of the people followed, crying out, away with him! And as Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, May I say something to you? And he said, do you know Greek? Are you not the the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? And Paul replied, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language, saying, Brothers and fathers... Hear the defense that I now make before you. When they had heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus and Cilicia, brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law and of our fathers. The righteous one, we'll see, sorry, verse 14. And he said, the God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now why do you wait, rise, and be baptized, and wash away your sins, calling on his name? When I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance. And saw Him saying to me, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Now up to this word, they listened to him. But then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. But when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, Is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? And when the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, What are you about to do? This man is a Roman citizen. So the tribune came and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, Yes. The tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. And Paul said, But I am a citizen by birth. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately. And the tribune also was afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this book compiled by Luke. That we can see the history of your church being built in its earliest stages. God, we stand today on over 2,000 years of church history. And we have the privilege of looking back and see that you are accomplishing what you promised. That your church will be built. The gates of hell will not stand against it. And so, Father, as we stand today, help us remain faithful. Stir within our hearts a passion to see your gospel go forth to the nations with the confidence and the courage that we serve the sovereign king of the world. We will not be stopped. Death will not stop the gospel from going forth and death does not stop us because we are alive in Christ. Father, it's to the eternal life that we have in him that we look to for hope that one day Christ will return and he will gather his bride. We will forever rule and reign with our king. It's in his name we pray. Amen. So a long passage, long story. This is the second time Paul, um, or we have seen the, the testimony of Paul um, in the book of Acts. And here Paul himself gives his testimony to his Jewish brothers. As we look back at the context of this, um, what's happening is Paul is being persecuted, being beaten by Jewish men. We know the text says they're from Asia who believe that Paul is teaching against Moses, against Jerusalem, against the temple. That people don't need to keep the law anymore. That all of that is null and void. That's what these guys believe about Paul's message. That the law and the prophets is just null and void. We don't need it. Now, we know as Christians this side of history that that is not the case. We, We believe that Paul is not saying that. That he's actually saying Christ fulfilled the law and the prophets. And that in him, everyone is a true Jew if they trust in Jesus. And as they are accusing him, the crowd begins to get unruly. They're beating him. And the Romans who are there come in and, and take Paul out. They don't like all of this commotion. And so they're going to pull him into the barracks, find out what is really going on, why these people are so angry at him. And it says here in, uh, in verse 39, 40... Um, no, verse 35, that they were carrying him out because he had been beaten so bad. Um, that the, the soldiers were actually having to carry him out. His own kinsmen, the Jews, had beat him this bad that he's being carried out and they don't want to stop beating him. And so Roman soldiers are taking him into the barracks and Paul stops them. He stops them. And he asks them, can, can I say something? Can I say something to these brothers in the middle of his being beaten paul's first reaction is not to escape the beating and the persecution he could have just let the soldiers carry him on into the barracks where he would be safe and and get to sit down and rest but rather than that paul stops and says can i speak to these people can I say something to them? Paul has a gospel vision of all people. The gospel of Jesus Christ impacts the very way Paul sees everyone. And we see that all throughout the New Testament in his letters and in writings about his ministry, that, that Paul sees everyone through a gospel lens. You and I are called to see people in this same way. In the midst of his persecution, he's going to stop and share, them, share with them the gospel, his testimony, his testimony. Maybe you're here this morning, you don't know what that gospel is. I just want to clarify what I'm talking about. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3 and 4 give us a clear statement of the gospel. Paul says, I delivered to you what was of first importance to me, that Christ died. For our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried and he rose again on the third day according to the scriptures. That's it. That is the simple good news of the gospel. That we were sinners. That Christ has died for our sin. That he was raised three days later. That he has ascended into heaven on high, and he will return again someday for his bride, the church. That is the gospel, and it's through that lens which we are called to see all people everywhere. A gospel vision for all people drives a gospel mission to all people. So that's what we're going to be looking at over this whole passage. We're going to see how a gospel vision of all people drives a gospel mission to all people. First, we see in this passage that the gospel vision Paul has, of all people, drives him with the gospel to the very ones who are persecuting him. To the very ones who are persecuting him. He he begins by saying, Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you brothers and fathers hear the defense that i now make before you he he's about to begin this defense of not only what he is preaching he's going to tell them why he's preaching this gospel he does this over and over again he goes with the gospel to those who persecute him he does it with the philippian jailer he does it with the roman centurion who's handcuffed to him paul sees a captive audience and he takes his opportunity And he gives the good news of Jesus to the very ones who are imprisoning him, who are beating him. And the question for us this morning is how does this gospel shape our thinking when it comes to those who would persecute us? If the gospel has implications for every facet of our life, including how we view all people, how does it affect the way we see those who would persecute us? Are we like Paul? Rather than flee persecution, when we stand in the midst of persecution and preach the good news of Jesus Christ to the very ones who would have us killed, or have us silenced in some way. Last week, I had the privilege—actually, the beginning of this this last week—I um, had the privilege of going to Denver, Colorado. I flew up there on Sunday night, um, and to meet with a couple of church planners there in Denver. Um, and I, I got to meet with one of them for lunch early on Monday. We were having a, they were doing a vision tour for pastors from around the country to talk about churches partnering with their plant there near downtown Denver. And uh, one of them, uh, a friend of mine... Jonathan, he and I sat down at lunch on Monday, and he was telling me about some things that have come to pass as they're trying to get this church started. They've got about 25 people in their core group that have all left their lives wherever they were and moved to Denver, gotten jobs there um, in order to be a part of this church plant and this gospel work that they are going to do in downtown Denver. And we sat down at a little Italian cafe... Near downtown Denver. And right across the street I could see an old United Methodist Church building. And on the front of the building were banners. um, In rainbow letters. That were written real, authentic, questioning. Jesus. All these buzzwords. There was a rainbow flag flying. Sunday was their pride parade in downtown Denver. And Jonathan began to tell me about the relationship they have with this pastor of this United Methodist Church that's dying. He said there are about 100 people left in the sanctuary that seats probably 500 or more. And he talked about the, the culture of downtown Denver and the area in particular where they're trying to reach people. It's the largest LGBT population in the state of Colorado, in the seven neighborhoods that they're trying to reach. There are 70,000 people there, only three evangelical churches, and they run maybe 100 people each. 69,000 people in that little area of Denver that don't know Jesus, do not have the gospel of Jesus Christ. So this is the area that they're going to try to reach And they thought they had a building to meet in, and it fell through. Um, And so, on Friday, they had a meeting with uh, an elementary school principal there. It's an elementary school that they've been ministering to, that they've been catering a lunch for once a week, and trying to get to know the teachers, and build a relationship with them. And they had a great relationship with the principal there, and so they met with her Friday. They were going to talk about their church being able to use the auditorium there at that elementary school to meet to worship God, to share the gospel, and she seemed very excited about the opportunity for them to meet there in that elementary school. And he, they walked into her office on Friday, and, and for about 20 minutes they talked about how great this would be for the community to have a church there in that school. There are no other church communities really close to that, and, and she was excited that that would create this bond within the community and this church be meeting there. And and then she said, but I have one question for you. One question that I want to ask. Are you an open and affirming congregation? And at first, Corbin, the lead planner, said he tried to play a little game of semantics and find out what she really meant by that. And he was like, well, tell me what you mean by that. And she said, well, I have a lot of close friends and family who are part of the LGBT community. It's very important for me that, that you are open and affirming of the homosexual lifestyle. And he said, well, we are open to them being in our community, to, to coming to our worship services, to, to building relationships with them. We want to love on them. It's Christ has loved us. And, and she said, no, no, no. It's a yes or no answer. I'm not asking whether you're just open to building a relationship with them. Are you affirming of their lifestyle, yes or no? And he said, well, the scripture does not teach that and so I am, I, we are not affirming of that lifestyle, no. And she said, well, until you are, you can't meet in this building. Like, I'm very passionate about this cause. And so you can't meet here. And where they're at, he's afraid that this is going to be an ongoing thing. That they, they hit an ongoing roadblock to the gospel. And the question is, do they just cut off relationships with these people? Because they're hindering them from worshiping. As an assembled congregation, does he stop taking lunches to this school because they said, no, you're not going to meet here? Does he stop speaking with this principal? And the answer is no. They will continue to love on these people. They will continue to share the gospel with these people. He views them not as enemies of their church plant, but they are enemies of the cross of Jesus Christ. And they need the good news of the gospel. Paul understood this as he talks to these Jews. That they are not his personal enemies, but they are enemies with God. And that's much worse for them. And so he looks at them with compassion. How does it drive us this morning? How is it driving you to the people who might persecute you? Maybe for you it's a light thing. Maybe it's a guy at work who just makes fun of Christians or makes jokes about Christians or... And, and you don't want to open up a conversation with him about the gospel because he already seems a little hostile to that. Would you keep your mouth shut because you feel he might be hostile toward you? How does it shape our thinking when we, we think about ISIS? When we think about the Syrian refugee crisis? How does the gospel shape our thinking? Do we shrink back in fear Or do we look at head on with the gospel of Jesus Christ serving a God who has the power to change hearts and minds and march in with the gospel? How does it affect the way you see college professors who make it their sole job to discredit Christianity, to tear down the Bible? Do you shrink back? Go along to get along Mentality, Your bosses at work. Well, I know that they're not friendly toward Christians. I know that they don't like um, the Bible and the gospel and all that. So I'm just going to keep my mouth shut around them. I'm not going to bring that up. What about our government officials? Do we turn this into a culture war where it's us against them mentality? Or do we see them with a gospel lens... And no, these people are not our enemies. No, it's much deeper than that. They're enemies of Jesus. Yet he gave his life for them. Will we not do the same? Would we not give our lives to share the gospel with those who persecute us? Would we not simply pray for those who persecute us? Paul standing on the steps here in this city looks at the very ones who had just beat him to the point that he could not stand. And he says, I, I want to speak to them still. And then look what he does. Verse 1, chapter 22. Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. Those who were persecuting Paul, those to whom he's about to give the gospel message, they were those who were closest to him. He speaks to them as brothers and fathers. You are my Jewish kinsmen. You are closest to me. And he begins to plead with them. Listen as he goes on in verse 2. And when they heard that he was addressing them in he- the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. Okay, he, he's addressing us in our native language. We should probably listen to what he has to say. He said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus and Cilicia. I was, I was born in Rome, but I was brought up in this city, in Jerusalem, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, very respected, honored teacher of the law. I was taught according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are this day. Notice what he does. He doesn't immediately discount what they're doing to him. Paul sees his persecution from their perspective and understands that they think Paul is a heretic, they think he's a blasphemer. And in the Jewish law, blasphemers die. That's what is to happen. That's so why they killed Jesus. He was blaspheming in their eyes. And, and so Paul says, I, I'm zealous for God just as you are. I understand your zeal. I'm with you. Verse 4, I persecuted this way. That's what it's being referred to at this point. The church is called the way. I persecuted this way to the death. Binding and delivering to prison both men and women as a high priest and a whole council of elders can bear me witness. High council and the elders were sending me letters telling me where to find these people of the way. And I was going and I was killing them. I was dragging them out of their homes, out of the places where they were worshiping. And I was having them beaten and killed. That is who Paul was. And he's saying this to these Jewish brothers. Listen, you have zeal. You're beating me because you think I'm a blasphemer. I did the same thing. I am with you. I understand. And then I journeyed toward Damascus. Halfway through verse 5 there. To take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. And then as I was on my way... And drew near to Damascus about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me. So he, he begins to open up and go through this testimony of his conversion. Paul loves those who are closest to him enough to give them the gospel. We see this in Romans 9. If you'll turn to me to get a better understanding of Paul's um, zeal and love and care for these brothers... I don't think he states it more strongly than in Romans 9. Beginning in verse 1 of Romans 9. If you're there, say, "Uh uh-huh. All right. I'm speaking the truth in Christ, Paul says. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. So, strong statement he's opening up with here. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears witness within me in the Holy Spirit. Verse 2, that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all blessed forever. Amen. Paul says, I love these people so much that if I could, I would be accursed and cut off and sent to hell for all eternity if it meant that my Jewish brothers would be saved. This is the gospel vision that Paul has. This is the gospel vision Paul has that he would rather suffer an eternal hell if it meant that his brothers in the flesh could be saved, if his Jewish brothers could be saved. And that is the vision that he has as he stands before these brothers here and shares his testimony, those who are closest to him. So he goes on, back in Acts 22, Go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by a hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. Now, Paul has made a huge statement here that, for those of us who are not a Jewish audience, may not really catch. But he just told them that Jesus of Nazareth was speaking to him from heaven. Now, they just killed him, right? They had just killed this blasphemer... Jesus, And now Paul is saying, that's the one who called me from heaven. Bright light shone and this Jesus spoke to me. So I can only imagine that that the Jews are getting a little flustered at this point with what he is saying. But Paul does not hold back on speaking the truth because it might make some people angry with him. It might upset them. He speaks the truth anyway, because it's the most loving thing that he can do. And he goes on. One Ananias, a devout man, according to the law. This is verse 12, well spoken of by all the Jews who live there. He came to me, standing by me, said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. So he just used a Jewish man to confirm what he had seen and heard. And at that very hour I received my sight and saw him. And he said, The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will. To see the righteous one and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. Paul brings out this name Ananias who is a a Jew. That most of them probably would have known about or heard his name. To confirm his testimony. Paul speaking to Jews. He understands what he's trying to do here. He's trying to make a defense for his gospel. And hoping that they will hear and receive this gospel. And so on every side he's trying to confirm. What he's saying is true. And from the words. Of Ananias From his mouth, he says, The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one. This title here was associated with the Messiah. The Jews would have known when he said righteous one, he was saying that he has a message from Messiah. And so he's put it out there that this message is from Messiah, Jesus, who he had just seen and heard from. For you will be my witness to everyone of what you have seen and heard. Verse 16. Now why do you wait? Rise, be baptized, wash away your sins, calling on his name. When I returned to Jerusalem, was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance, saw him saying to me, make haste, get out of Jerusalem quickly, because they will not accept your testimony about me. Now understand between verse 16 and verse 17, there's a three-year break that happens. As he's telling this story, he doesn't tell us about the three-year break. But there is a three-year break in Paul's story here. In verse 16, he does call on Jesus' name. He is saved. He does follow him. He goes out into the wilderness for three years. And he's taken into this trance where he and Jesus talk for like three years. And he's ministered to And he's taught all of these things that he's now going to preach. So then when he returned to Jerusalem after that three years, he was praying in the temple. I fell into a trance and I saw him saying to me, make haste get out of Jerusalem quickly because they are not going to accept your testimony about me. So he's saying to these Jews, Jesus told me you're not going to accept my testimony. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another I am prison and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness was being shed, I myself was standing by and approved and watching over the garments of those who killed him and he said to me go for I will send you as far away to the Gentiles he said but Lord they know they know that I killed these people they know that that I persecuted the way so why wouldn't they believe me now that I've converted they know that I was with them he says go they're they're not going to be happy (laughs) They will kill you. Paul goes to those who are closest to him. And he doesn't hold back the truth of the gospel. He doesn't shy away from the terms that refer to Jesus Christ as the Messiah. He doesn't shy away from telling them the truth that they need to hear. That they are wrong. And that's often the hardest thing to do with those who are closest to us. Those who are closest to us need the gospel just as desperately as those who are far off. In the church, we will often run to those who are weak and helpless. And those that we don't know with the gospel we will go on a short-term mission trip. And we're confident and we're bold in our witness for the gospel among people that we don't know and have no relationship with. Because it's like, I can talk to them about the gospel. I can mess this up. They don't know me from Adam. So if they're mad at me, I'm not going to see them ever again. That's fine. It's often the people that we sit next to at work every day that's the hardest to give the gospel to. Because if that conversation doesn't go down so well, it could mean some awkward days ahead, right? And so we shy away from the truth of the gospel. We don't want to make people angry. We want people to like us But a gospel vision of all people doesn't see our circumstances. It doesn't see this relationship as something that should be worshipped, but rather it sees to the heart of a human being who is desperately in need of a savior. And Paul knows that those who are closest to him, his brothers whom he has said he would give his life for if if they could just be saved. He gives it to them anyway, willing to to break this relationship, willing to be beaten by them, to be persecuted by them? Are there people in in your life with whom you enjoy a relationship and you fear that sharing the gospel with them will destroy that relationship? You fear that telling them the truth would bring some sort of division? Your gospel vision of them is not fully functioning. If you're worried about circumstances here keeping you from giving them the gospel, then you really don't understand their desperate need of Jesus. David Platt says, Every saved person this side of heaven owes the gospel to every lost person this side of hell. We owe the gospel to them. Do we see those closest to us through a gospel lens? Jesus said this gospel would divide families and he did not apologize for it. In Luke twelve fifty one, he said, Do you think that I've come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on, in one house, there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Jesus said, I didn't come so you could have nice relationships with a lost world. I came so that you might save them with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it will divide people. It will divide households. Do we see people with a gospel lens that would say, I'm I'm more about their eternal state than I am about this temporal relationship that may last another 20 years? In the broad scheme of eternity, their soul is more important than me being able to have some conversation about sports every day at work. Paul saw that those who were closest to him, his brothers, by blood and by the flesh, needed the gospel and so he gave it to them. He didn't care what kind of division it would cause But he also went to those who were far off. He didn't just stop there. Verse 21, he said to me, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Now, verse 22. Up to this word, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live they were listening to him up until that point and then he said oh and he told me I should take this gospel to the Gentiles and then the Jews are really ticked off that was a cool story bro until you got to that part we don't like that part those filthy vile people will never be allowed into our kingdom that's not what God has promised to us even though he did Paul knows that that's going to tick them off. He knows how they view the Gentiles. But Paul's view of the gospel is bigger than temporal relationships. And he's committed to going to these people who are far off. The Jews hated them. Paul loves them because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And there are going to be times in this life when God calls you to a place... That other people will not understand. God may call you to serve in some remote village around the world. That doesn't have access to the gospel. And your family may think that is crazy. If you've ever read the book Beyond the Gates of Splendor. Or see the movie that was based on that book. I'm sure there were those around Jim Elliot. And Steve Saint and the others that were part of that That group that went to this tribe who were spearing people to death, who had never been reached by anyone, they were uncivilized. I'm sure there were people around them going, you can't go in there with the gospel, they'll just kill you. This is just a death march that you're on, but they went anyway because the gospel of Jesus Christ compelled them to go. And there will be people around you that think you are crazy, maybe for the way you live your life. Because you base your life on scripture. Maybe for the way you share the gospel or where you share the gospel. You may be ridiculed in your job. You may be ridiculed by your family. Some may get angry at you. You're not taking my grandkids halfway across the world to minister to these tribal people. I'll never see them again. How could you do that? Because we have a gospel vision. And a gospel vision of all people drives a gospel mission to all people. So this morning, I, I, I ask you the question are there people in your life that you say, oh, they're, they're good people? They'll, they're probably already a believer. They're good people. They probably already believe in Jesus. So, so you just keep your mouth shut. Or there may be those that you see and you say, uh, God can't save that one. Never gonna happen. I can never have a conversation with them. They're too hostile to the gospel. Except in the midst of Paul's being beaten by these people, he decides to stop and and tell them... The gospel. Do we have a gospel vision of all people? Do we see all people for who they really are? Enemies of the cross of Jesus Christ. On their way to an eternal hell. No one is a good person. You are not a good person. Your neighbor is not a good guy. Romans tells us. There's none good, not even one. There is none who seeks after God. There is none who understands. That's a gospel vision of all people. That we are wretched in need of a Savior. Do we all have a gospel vision in this room that drives us on gospel mission to all people? Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning that you have given us your Holy Spirit, that those who have trusted in you, who have obeyed the gospel, that we have the power of Christ within us to open our mouths to speak the gospel to neighbors, to relatives, to friends, to those on the other side of the world, because you have promised that you will build your church. So God, I pray that we would go boldly. That we would speak truth and love. That we would not idolize relationships here to the point that we hold back the gospel of Jesus. But Father, we would be willing to sacrifice it all that one soul might know you. Father, help us this week. To do just that, it's in Christ's name we pray, amen.